Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Joni Grieve, in for Jonathan Friedland. It's been 50 years this month since National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger made a secret trip to the People's Republic of China in July 1971. Coming amid the backdrop of the Cold War, in the U.S. imagination, China was Red China, and to the Chinese, the Americans were devils. So Kissinger's trip marked a massive turning point in 20th century history. There can be no stable and enduring peace without the participation of the People's Republic of China and its 750 million people. Less than a year later, President Nixon himself traveled to China to meet with Chairman Mao. After more than two decades of no contact, this was the beginning of what would become one of the world's most important and fraught bilateral relationships. In fact, it is in the United States' interest that uh, China uh, continues on the path of success uh, because we believe that a peaceful and stable and prosperous China uh, is not only good for Chinese, but also good for the world and for the United States. John Ying Jia is a Chinese-American writer and journalist who grew up in Beijing during the 1970s. She was 11 when the announcement came that President Nixon would come to visit. By the time Nixon actually uh, visited, I was 12. But even for someone my age, I think you had a vague sense that this was something of a watershed. It's going to be a turning point of some sort, though I clearly couldn't, you know, grasp the real implication of it. But I, I think all of it had a, had a sense that this is a beginning of something. Nearly a decade after the visit, Jin Ying was one of the first Chinese students to be allowed to study in the U.S. on a special scholarship. Kissinger and then Nixon's visit was absolutely critical event in not only my life, but uh, the lives of my generation in China. I wouldn't be alone to say that this changed my life. But despite the hopes that stemmed from that first Kissinger trip to China in 1971, this was not to be the start of a beautiful friendship, but rather the beginning of a pretty rocky relationship with former President Donald Trump and the coronavirus pandemic escalating an already fracturing alliance. We must hold accountable the nation which unleashed this plague onto the world, China. With President Biden now at the helm and the Chinese economy predicted to overtake the U.S. in just a few years, how have relations between the two nations changed since Kissinger's visit in 1971? And what is the future of these two superpowers? Who better to ask than Vincent Ni, The Guardian's China affairs correspondent who presented a documentary on BBC World Service called When Kissinger Went to China. 
I started off by asking him how the 1971 meeting came about. Well, to some extent, it was a multi-year project, starting with both sides signaling the intention of contact. This was initially conducted very quietly and in a very subtle way, beginning with the U.S. calling China its proper name, uh, People's Republic of China, instead of Red China or Communist China. And in Beijing, Mao also wanted to get in touch with Richard Nixon and his administration. So they state-owned media began to reduce the use of blood-sucking capitalists, things like this. But eventually, President Nixon told Pakistani President Yahya Khan, and Yahya Khan then told Chairman Mao that the Americans were serious. So that was the beginning of um, this contact. And in retrospect, it was a very practical way of changing the course of the Cold War, if you think about in the 1960s and the 70s, when Richard Nixon came to power in 1968, Vietnam War was still a huge controversy in the US. And in China, around 1969, there was a border war between China and the Soviet Union. And around around autumn 1969, uh, it was rumored that the Soviet Union wanted to plan a preemptive strike on China. So uh, Chairman Mao uh, at the time was really looking for a way out of this. And of course, you know, for Nixon, by going to another communist big power, they wanted to change the triangular relationship between the U.S., Soviet Union and China. And looking back now, 50 years after the fact, where do you think the U.S.-Chinese relationship would be if Kissinger hadn't made that trip? We probably need to go back to 1967, before Richard Nixon became the American president. In 1967, he wrote an article called Asia After Vietnam in Foreign Affairs magazine. This is what he wrote, and then I quote, he said, Taking the long view, we simply cannot afford to leave China forever outside the family of nations, there to nurture its fantasies, cherish its hates, and threaten its neighbors. There is no place on this small planet for a billion of its potentially most able people to live in angry situation. So had there no contact between China and the United States, probably we will see a China, something like you know, what Richard Nixon described in 1967. And now that we're 50 years after that Kissinger meeting, the power dynamics between the U.S. and China have obviously changed a lot. Most notably, China has become a major player on the economic world stage. Can you talk a little bit about what impact China's growing economy has had on its relationship with the U.S.? Well, of course, China's uh, booming economy uh, in the last few decades really changed the dynamics of China's relationship not just with the United States, but also with the rest of the world, in particular in Asia. China is now the largest trading partner for many countries around the world. And, um, you know, that really meant that, you know, China is now having a seat at the table, um, especially after uh, 2008 and the ninth global financial crisis. That essentially invalidated American way of doing business, right? Um, you know, China then you know, issued a $4 trillion, uh, stimulus package into its economy, essentially helped the recovery of the global economy as well. And that really made China more confident.
Like you already mentioned, Vincent, back in the Cold War, the U.S. and China really demonized each other a lot. In America, China was seen as Red China or Communist China, and to the Chinese, Americans were considered devils. So how does that compare to today? Does it feel like each side continues to view the other through this caricature lens? Well, I think the reason why we heard so many insults uh, on both countries at the time in the 1970s was really because neither side uh, understood very much of the other side, right? But, you know, over the last few decades through engagement, there was greater understanding of uh, the U.S. uh, in China and vice versa of China in the United States. Over the last few years, uh, the mood in both countries has very uh, visibly changed. Uh, I was reading this uh, Pew Research poll, um, something like, you know, uh, nine out of 10 Americans uh, see China uh, not as a partner uh, for the United States. Uh, Rather, they see China as some sort of, uh, you know, uh, competitor or enemy. And that is very worrying to Beijing, you know, if it wants to have a continued healthy relationship with the United States. But I have to say, you know, the feeling is mutual on the other side of the Pacific. And... 1971 is really heralded as this huge breakthrough moment in the U.S.-Chinese relationship. In the five decades since, there's obviously been a lot of tension that has built in that relationship. So when would you say cracks started to appear in the relationship between the U.S. and China? There have always been ups and downs. Uh, For example, in 1999, there was this huge row between U.S. and China over U.S. bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, right? And of course, you know, everyone remembers 1989, the Tiananmen crackdown. Shortly after that, the U.S. imposed sanctions on China. But then, you know, the sort of structural change really slowly started, in my view, around 2008 global financial crisis. It was the first time that the Chinese leadership thought, hmm, you know, we've been learning so much from the U.S. over the years. But then, you know, there was a financial crisis and we handled it pretty well. Does that suggest that the way China conducts its business is actually much more effective than the way the U.S. conducts its business. Now, this was the start of the sort of uh, doubt over the way the U.S. governs itself. But then, you know, in the next decade, you know, you had uh, the rise of Donald Trump. And also earlier this year, you had this uh, massive storming into Capitol Hill, the heart of American democracy by the angry mob. And, And these images going to Beijing really suggested to the Chinese leadership that the U.S. is probably on a structural decline and it's in irreversible decline. And these days, you know, if you switch on official Chinese media channels, they will say the East is rising, the West is somewhat falling. And this is really making Beijing more confident about the way it governs its country. Obviously, less than a year after Kissinger's trip to China, Richard Nixon became the first U.S. president to visit the People's Republic of China since it was established in 1949. So how have different U.S. presidents since Nixon approached the U.S.-Chinese relationship? And who would you say has had the biggest impact in steering that relationship, either in a positive or negative way? The U.S.'s engagement policy with China 
began to change uh, when Donald Trump came to power. So we're really talking about two stages of U.S.-China relationship uh, since Nixon's visit in 1972, right? Since he visited in 1972 until the rise of Donald Trump, it was the engagement policy. You know, even Obama, while announcing his pivot to Asia, he still talked of the language that we would encourage China into the international world order and encouraging China to become what he called a responsible stakeholder. And I would say in this during this period, the most important person is Bill Clinton, who encouraged China to join the World Trade Organization and thinking that you know when China joins the uh, international system, China will become a more you know, international player and will become more like us in the Americans' words. Um, but you know, in Donald Trump's perspective, China didn't become more like us. In fact, China's China has become less like us. What is the significance of Taiwan in the US-Chinese relationship? Traditionally, Taiwan has been a major sticking point in the relations between the U.S. and China. But recently, under the Biden administration, the U.S. has actually been getting closer to Taiwan. So why do you think that shift is happening? The American policy on Taiwan has always been what some analysts call strategic ambiguity. You know, they don't make it too clear about where they stand on the Taiwan issue. But then, you know, they also uh, recognize uh, Taiwan belongs to one China, but you know, who represents this China is really up to uh, people on both sides of the Taiwan Strait for you know, Taiwan as well as mainland China to decide. So this has always been an issue and there have always been flare-ups, especially, you know, the US continue to sell arms to Taiwan. And you know, the recent flare-ups uh, in the relationship uh, vis-a-vis Taiwan um, did not really start from um, the Biden administration. It actually started with the Trump administration, right? You know, Trump, um, you know, intensified the frequency of arms sales to Taiwan that really annoyed the Chinese. And before he became the president, when he was president-elect, he, you know, famously um, picked up a call with the Taiwanese president, Tsai Ing-wen. That really uh, was the start of the recent row over Taiwan between U.S. and China. I guess, you know, what the Americans wanted to do here is that they wanted to help Taiwan to expand its international recognition. And to some extent, they have been uh, very successfully been doing that uh, in the last uh, few years. And the Biden administration has continued this, this policy on Taiwan. And like you already mentioned, the U.S.-Chinese relationship really changed under the Trump administration. In its National Defense Strategy report, the Trump White House redefined China as a strategic competitor rather than a strategic partner. Can you just tell us a little bit more about that report and how it altered U.S. policy regarding China? Well, in Beijing's perspective, you know, that report, as well as the U.S.'s 2017 National Security Strategy, really was the start of a bumpy ride ahead uh, in the bilateral relationship, right? So in that report you just mentioned, it said China and Russia want to reshape a world antithetical to U.S. values and interests. China seeks, in its words, to displace the United States in the Indo-Pacific region, expand the reaches of its state-driven economic model, 
and reorder the region in its favor. This is something that Beijing would always dispute. But in the Trump administration's perspective, you know, it was the time to take on China because they feel that if they didn't do it, China will continue to throw its weights around in the region and, and also beyond. After consulting with our top government health professionals, I have decided to take several strong but necessary actions to protect the health and well-being of all Americans. Let's talk a little bit about the effect that the coronavirus pandemic has had on the U.S.-Chinese relationship. Obviously, Donald Trump really tried to blame China for the initial outbreak of COVID, and he was accused of using several racist slurs to refer to the virus. I can't imagine that helped the U.S.-Chinese relationship. So can you talk about how that affected the U.S.-Chinese relationship? Because I can't imagine that it helped matters. The pandemic certainly accelerated the deterioration of the U.S.-China relationship. But we also need to remember that the deterioration of the bilateral relationship really started before this pandemic started, right? So to some extent, the pandemic was only an accelerator. And what we are seeing now is this structural change in the bilateral relationship. The U.S. and China felt that they are both challenging each other's supremacy, especially in the Indo-Pacific region, in the U.S. words, but in Chinese words, in the Asia-Pacific region. And the you know, pandemic really made things worse. To some extent, you know, the U.S. initially was concerned about Beijing spreading its values beyond its borders. But then in reality, the way President Trump, the former President Donald Trump, dealt with the coronavirus uh, really you know, made things uh, the other way around. We'll have strong competition, but we'll insist that China play by the international rules. Fair competition, fair practices, fair trade. So now we have a new occupant in the White House, Joe Biden. And Biden has had some colorful language when it comes to comparing the U.S. and China. He has warned that uh, China is, quote, eating our lunch when it comes to economic competitiveness. So how has Biden approached the U.S.-Chinese relationship? Do you feel like he is trying to pivot back to a pre-Trump stance on the U.S.-Chinese relationship? Or does it seem like he's trying to steer his country in a totally new direction? Biden may be a very different president from Donald Trump, um, as we all know. But his China policy is interestingly, strikingly similar to Donald Trump's, uh, which is to treat China as a strategic competitor and see China's action internationally has profound consequences to the so-called liberal world order. The difference is only in the style rather than in substance. Let's talk a little bit about the relationship between the presidents of the U.S. and China. Can you talk a little bit about how Chinese President Xi Jinping sees President Biden? The two men have met before when Biden was vice president. Is that correct? I mean, President Xi has known President Biden for some years now. Uh, Chinese leaders actually would traditionally prefer Republican presidents because, you know, they think Republicans talk more about business rather than values, for example, democracy, uh, human rights. So in some ways, the recent barrage of uh, criticism over China's human rights record, for example, is really expected under a democratic uh, president uh, in the United States. What really alerted Beijing um, this time around is Biden's approach to U.S. allies. You know, in Beijing's perspective, the U.S. is 
uniting or reuniting its allies to counter China, or in Beijing's words, to contain China's rise. But of course, Washington will always disagree with this assessment. And human rights has arguably been one of the greatest points of tension in the U.S.-Chinese relationship. Xinjiang affair is totally China's internal affairs. And the sanction is based on unfounded accusation. Doing Xinjiang is just just precautionary measures in anti-terrorism and anti-secessionism to safeguard our national interest. And human rights has arguably been one of the greatest points of tension in the U.S.-Chinese relationship. The organization Human Rights Watch has said that China is, quote, in the midst of its darkest period for human rights since the Tiananmen Square massacre. So what are the allegations that human rights groups have leveled against China? Well, in recent years, we've heard uh, human rights organizations uh, accusing China of atrocities in Xinjiang. Uh, Some human rights organizations said this is a crime against humanity. Um, And including the Biden administration called the situation in Xinjiang, in their words, genocide. Of course, you know, China uh, disputes these allegations. There's always this problem with Tibet. And then more recently, in more recent years, uh, it was the problem with Hong Kong, through which both sides imposed sanctions on one another. And many commentators have said that China and the U.S. are actually entering into a new type of Cold War. But you have cautioned against that analogy. Why is that? Well, I think um, it's always very tempting to use historical analogies to talk about um, the reality, a present day reality. But I think there are so many differences between uh, the 20th century Cold War and the major power competition today, one of the most striking differences is, is, you know, economy, right? You know, China is now the second largest economy in the world. Its economy is hugely integrated into global supply chain. 20th century Cold War was characterized by proxy wars. You know, it was driven by ideological expansion. And I think, you know, we are not there yet. Although, you know, some commentators would phrase the U.S.-China competition as ultimately a struggle of different values. I think that's up to debate. You know, not everybody would agree with that. But however we characterize U.S.-China relationship, nobody wants both powers, two biggest powers in the world, to go into war. Um, Everyone's politics will then be distorted. Everyone will be caught in the middle. Um, And of course, you will also have to remember that U.S. and China are both nuclear powers. And um, do not forget, it is the ordinary people on both sides of the Pacific, potentially more in the rest of the world, who are caught up in the middle. And Vincent, we always ask a what else question on our podcast. So let's shift away from the historical relationship between the U.S. and China and talk about something that is actually happening this week. According to a report in the Financial Times, the Biden administration is preparing to warn American companies of the increasing risks of doing business in Hong Kong because Beijing is exerting more control over the region. The White House and the State Department declined to comment when approached by the FT. But can you tell us a little bit about what actions China has been taking in Hong Kong and why the Biden administration might be concerned? The situation in Hong Kong has been deteriorating over the last few years, really. Um, The uh, recent flashpoint was the imposition of the national security law last year, which critics will say was very draconian. And supporters of Beijing's national security law uh, on Hong Kong will say this is very necessary because Hong Kong is a part of China. But in Washington, what Biden 
administration was really concerned about is Beijing breaking its promise uh, that was assigned in the 1984 Joint Declaration of the United Kingdom. So, you know, Biden administration has come up with uh, sanctions uh, to challenge China's uh, dominance uh, in Hong Kong. But, you know, China would say Hong Kong is a part of China. So why we as a central government cannot exert our influence uh, in Hong Kong? So, you know, the point is that this sort of wall of words go back and forth for some time. And the Biden administration, as well as Beijing, um, have both imposed sanctions on one another. You know, I have to say, you know, when it comes to sanctions are only a means to an end. The end is to change the behavior of the other side. But what we are seeing now is sanctions are being used as a, as a tool to antagonize one another. You know, some people would be rightly very worried about what is going to happen to Hong Kong, especially being, you know, having Hong Kong being caught up in between Washington and Beijing. Vincent Ni, The Guardian's China affairs correspondent, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast this week. Thank you for having me. And that's all from me this week. Make sure to listen back to Wednesday's episode of UK Politics Weekly. Following a disappointing loss over the weekend in the Euro final, Jessica Elgott looks at the future of progressive politics in the UK. Please do send me your comments and questions. You can email us at podcastsattheguardian.com or tweet me directly on Twitter. My handle there is at Joan E. Grieve. But for now, I say goodbye. The producer was Esther Opoku-Jenny, and I'm Joni Grieve. Please stay safe out there, and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.